Be patient and research your business model before you go out looking for capital. Because I think what happens is a lot of founders go out and prematurely try to raise money and they don't have a business model that's been well thought through. They don't know that there's authentic demand. They haven't determined who all the competitors are and they look foolish. And what happens is they undercut their ability to raise capital. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. That voice you just heard belongs to John Yates, technology attorney at Morris Manning and a startup world institution in Atlanta for the past 40 years. If you're involved in funding or entrepreneurship in the South, you know John. He has seen it all, and so I forced him during this conversation to walk through the history of how the Atlanta market developed over the decades. This is a fun one. If you've been here a while, listen for your name to be dropped. Subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen. And please visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and to learn about our work as a product and venture studio. If you know of any amazing founders, especially ones in the impact space, please send them our way. Hello at pixelrecess.com. We're building an outstanding portfolio of companies using technology at scale to address some of the world's biggest challenges. We'd love to hear about what they're working on. As always, thanks for listening. I'm John Yates, and I chair the technology practice of the law firm of Morris, Manning & Martin in Atlanta. We have the pleasure of representing over 450 technology companies throughout the United States, A to Z legal services. But our model is different in the sense that we provide a unique value-added set of legal services, and that includes working with our clients in connection with their capital raising, in connection with management talent, prospective customers, strategic partners, doing things that basically allow us to partner, so to speak, with our clients in a unique kind of way. This is my 40th year practicing law, and this is all I've been doing. 40th year? Gosh, yeah, you must have been two, two, three years old when you started. You must have been a, a prodigy to well, get out that early. I still have some hair left, Mark, but I tell you, I was very fortunate to get plugged into this area. My sister started this tech company in the early 80s in, in the Valley. 1981 was the year I got out of law school, and it was the year the IBM PC was announced. And I know you as the local Atlanta institution that you are. So tell me more about your history. Where are you from? How did you end up in Atlanta to begin with? Those are good questions. So I actually was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I don't remember anything about it. I barely can spell it. My parents Mm -hmm. moved south when I was two, moved to Raleigh, and my father was a traveling salesman and was his entire life. And that's really a skill set that I never thought I would use, but it turns out it's been pretty valuable just having remembered the way he operated. We moved to Charlotte when I was in the second grade. And that's really where I considered my hometown and grew up. Went through the public school system, then went to Duke University, undergraduate in law school, straight through. And then that was when my sister had gone to California. So I got out of law school, went out and visited her and said, man, this is amazing. But didn't want to move to California. And Charlotte was a nice town, but pretty small at the time. So my wife and I said, look, let's move to Atlanta. It's got a great legal community. It's certainly the capital of the Southeast. And we can move back to Charlotte or maybe to Washington, D.C. or New York later on as the practice grew. So I came to Atlanta, didn't know a soul. And 40 years later, we know a lot of people and we've been very blessed to have a a lot of success in growing a tech practice. You work with entrepreneurs all the time. Building the practice the way you have, has that felt like an entrepreneurial activity or have you felt like an employee? Most people don't go to law school because they want to 
be entrepreneurs. So how did you think about it, having built what you've built? I think one of the benefits of being a technology lawyer and the kind of work that I do is that you have to both understand the practice of law and be a good lawyer. But then if you understand the way the technology community is going and innovation, you can apply the law to the tech. The challenge that we've had and that I've faced, and frankly, the exciting part of the business is that when I first started out, there was no treatise you could go to to talk about computer law. As a matter of fact, right. there was no computer law treatise. There is now. There's hundreds of them. And so I really was able to get in on the ground level. And to answer your question, yes, it was like being an entrepreneur because nobody was doing it. And most law firms didn't have anybody that was focused on it. And I was one of the few people that had a microcomputer that my sister had given me, <laughs> which I could never get to interface with the printer, but I but I actually could use WordStar and you know produce documents from uh. it. So one of the benefits I had was one, learning from a mentor who helped me become a good lawyer, taught me what a starch shirt was and how to tie and <laughs> the fundamentals of practicing law. But he also gave me the leeway to then begin to develop this practice. And so not only did I practice law in a generic kind of way with, with lots of different kind of companies and corporate clients, but I was able to bring in some of my own business from these young entrepreneurs. And so it was a unique blend. And it's something I've tried to continue today with our team, give them the ability to both become great lawyers work with interesting growing companies, but also work with entrepreneurs so they can see how these companies grow. What did it feel like at Morris Manning? My, my understanding of the history, I've only been here for 20 years, but the Morris Manning's always been a respected firm, but it was a real estate firm. That's where the real estate people went. And so what's it like hopping in and saying, oh yeah, I'm going to build a tech practice at this real estate firm because real estate and tech are just a bit different. Now you're absolutely right. When I joined the firm, it was predominantly known as a real estate firm, but frankly, what the firm really was an entrepreneurial firm. Sonny Morris, and Joe Manning built the firm as entrepreneurs. Literally, they left an established law firm where they could have been happy for the rest of their careers and started from scratch. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They start from scratch. And so it was, yes, it was a real estate firm, but it was working with entrepreneurial people that were involved in real estate. So my practice fit right in, in the sense that these were companies, they weren't, yeah, they weren't buying land and dirt, but what they were doing was building products, building software. And the maybe the most unique unique thing, Mark, was that as opposed to the real estate attorneys who are more focused on what was happening in the greater Atlanta area, which was growing dramatically, the technology area and the technology practice we had was and still is today very national because these companies were all over the place, and especially today in the virtual world. So it really worked together extremely well, just working with fellow entrepreneurial lawyers. So describe for me in, in those days, pick a time period back towards the beginning of that. Describe the Atlanta market to me. You're already focused on tech in a town that is basically a real estate town. If you were an entrepreneur and if you had serious money in Atlanta, the two things you did are either <laughs> to start real estate business, fund real estate, or maybe start a real estate adjacent thing like a law firm or something similar. So describe what the market was like then. This was the early 80s now. The market was very limited in its size and it was primarily dominated by mainframe and many computer companies. So the big company that was around in the early 80s was Management Science America, MSA, that John Imlay helped to build. And that company, which had its headquarters in Lenox, in the Lenox area, was basically providing accounting software and related tools, but in the mid-range and mainframe software market. So we're talking about big systems that are used by big companies. What changed dramatically, and, and I was just fortunate to be right there at the top of the curve, was when the IBM PC was announced. Because the IBM PC was open architecture, meaning that all the, the specs for how to write software were wide open. And so IBM opened it up to the software world. Atlanta had a lot of software people from MSA and American Software and elsewhere. And a lot of those folks saw the PC 
as a wave of the future. So that really was the beginning of the software revolution in Atlanta. And then having that fed with Georgia Tech students resulted in this ecosystem that began to grow quite rapidly. So talk about the funding market then. What existed? What was there available? Was there an angel market then, non-real estate related? The reality of it is there were very few funds at that time. There were very few seed funds. There were very few venture funds in the area. Probably the oldest venture fund we have and a very fine fund is Nora Mosley. I've been around a long time and they've succeeded in moving through successive generations. But they were one of the few funds that started at that early time. And so when you were looking for capital, you had to go back to the real estate people that you talked about earlier and convince them that, yeah, real estate's cool, but listen, silicon and software is even cooler. So obviously an educational process, or you had to go to the West Coast. And so what I started doing was developing relationships with funds that were in Silicon Valley and then in Boston and then in New York and then in Northern Virginia. And to this day, prior to the pandemic, we traveled to all those cities and more every year just on a rotating basis and walk in there and basically tell them about all the great things that are happening in Atlanta and great things with our clients and develop those relationships now with over 500 funds that we have relationships with. Yes, my experience with real estate people is that they only do real estate. They know it. They know everything about it. They feel like they can judge every piece of risk in a real estate deal. You can't get a real estate person to put $100,000 into a company, but they'll personally guarantee $600 million worth of loans. And number two, they're usually, it's a leveraged business. They're usually not liquid. And so that doesn't really help either. There's not a lot of you know liquid capital just laying around to be tied up somewhere else. You're right. absolutely right. The biggest challenge we found also with real estate investors, and, and this is not at all to be critical of them, but they're also used to performance-based milestones being met. You know, you build the foundation, you get paid. You, you put the roof on, you get paid. And software and technology and medical device companies don't oftentimes work like that, especially biotech companies. So it is a different mindset. What we have seen, and, and it began to grow to a point where as we had the dot-com revolution that occurred in Atlanta, we had a lot more early stage funds. And what we found was a lot of these real estate folks started their own tech fund. But to the point you make, Mark, a lot of those tech funds were extremely cautious in how they invested. And then when they did make investments, they understood real estate, but they didn't understand tech well. And guess what happened when the when the dot-com bubble burst? It burst and all these tech companies basically collapsed. And needless to say, a lot of the investors that had been in real estate left tech and went back to real estate. So it caused a depression of that market back in the dot-com era. All right. So when you go to the, when you start going to the Valley, is the objective to find capital that will invest here? Is the objective to try to move some of those people to Atlanta to try to have offices here? Like what is the core thing you're trying to solve? So it's changed over time. When you go to the Valley in the eighties, what you saw saw at that point were the beginnings of the venture capital market and people writing very small checks, anywhere from one to $10 million with these early stage companies. And by the way, those funds were looking for hot companies generally in the Valley. Many of those funds still today won't invest if a company is not within a 10 mile radius of the headquarters of the fund. What we've seen change over time though, is their willingness to look elsewhere. But the second stage was, oh yeah, they'll look elsewhere. They'll come make an investment in Atlanta or Chicago or Virginia. They'll make the investment and then they move the company to Silicon Valley. That doesn't do much for Atlanta or other cities. The third phase, which we're in now, which is the most rewarding, is the fact that not only do they not want to move the company back to Silicon Valley, many of these funds won't even invest in Silicon Valley companies. Their point is, look, there's four or five of the leading venture funds in the world that are in Silicon Valley that get the gravy and the cream of the crop out there in the Valley. The rest of them, they 
basically say, look, we're going to look elsewhere. We're going to look at a situation where we can put money in companies outside of the valley. Yeah, we might have some senior execs in the valley, but we're going to grow these businesses somewhere else where we can have a better idea of finding talent at a more reasonable price. So what do you think not having money here, institutional capital or really angel capital, what, what do you think that did to the market here? What do you think that did to the possibilities and to the deal flow? And Yeah, it's a good point because what happens is if you think about it, the phenomenon and the problem that we have in Atlanta and in Georgia is the same problem that's had just about everywhere outside of Silicon Valley, Boston, and some places in New York. We're not alone. It's a problem that Raleigh-Durham faces. It's a problem that every city in Florida faces. It's a problem in the Midwest. To your earlier question, these funds generally are not in the habit of having regional offices. A few of them do, but it's rare. Hartsfield-Jackson, you can get anywhere you want. So I, I tell our clients, and I also tell our economic development leaders, listen, we can try to say to these funds, come open an office here. But the reality of it is these funds can get on a plane in Boston, New York, even in the Valley, especially on the East Coast. They can fly here for a meeting for the night before. They can have a meeting with the, the company. They can have a board meeting the next day. They can, they can fly to go to the airport about two or three in the afternoon, and they can tuck their kids in at night. And so the benefit of it is that infrastructure. And from our standpoint, that infrastructure, which we need to continue to grow, and the fact we have Georgia Tech, and the fact that we've got a, a community that people are attracted to and want to stay in makes Atlanta in a very unique posture and more unique than either cities like Austin or some other cities that might be considered competitors like Raleigh-Durham. When there's not institutional capital here, even if they're willing to fund somebody somewhere else, that this interesting dynamic gets created wherein that they, they like they have enough deal flow within 40 feet of where they are to be more than enough busy. It's not like they're desperate for deals at the time, particularly that, that's that's changing a little bit now with the level of capital that's flowing into funds. But in the five or six or two or three, whatever it is, no brainers or super hot deals that come out of Atlanta, they'll hear about. They're not going to miss that. They're not going to miss some massive opportunity. And so, yeah, why move? Why come set up here? And yet without activating them extensively, it, sometimes that's not enough to really shift the dynamics of the market here so that more people try to do things. I think what we found too is that a lot of these funds, and I wish I had a dollar for every time a fund told me that yes, they're in Silicon Valley or they're in Boston, but they don't invest in those markets. And what they're looking for are companies in underserved markets from a capital standpoint where valuations are more realistic. They don't want to have a situation where a dozen and 20 funds are all trying to put money into a company and, and artificially inflating the valuation. And they also want to find a community where they know that there's talent that's not being cannibalized constantly by other companies. Atlanta's well positioned in that regard. Austin's got a lot to offer. Again, other cities do too. But we, we also have this very unique aspect, Mark, which is basically number three in the country for Fortune 100 headquarters. And so we're doing some things to try to get those companies, those larger companies ingrained in the community that allow our tech companies then to show that we have pilots and betas and customers that allow us to fetch the higher valuations for those companies. Not to give you an opportunity to alienate anyone, but one of the frustrating things about watching the last 20 years or so that I've been here is, yeah, you're absolutely right. All, all of the hard things to build in an ecosystem we have in spades and all the things you couldn't develop. Six universities within a stone store of each other, uh, a deep water port right down the road, the fiber everywhere you dig a hole, the busiest airport in the world. So all those hard things that would be almost impossible to build in the ecosystem we've got. And yet it didn't seem to affect the rest of the marketplace very much. And and that's a re relatively frustrating 
frustrating dynamic when you're an entrepreneur trying to work inside that that kind of an ecosystem. It didn't change the level of dollar amounts that were often available. Exactly. I think the biggest concern that I've got for our community right now, Mark, is that we've got a lot, we've got a good thing going, but reputation does matter. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't create this environment where, you know, doing business in Georgia is not easy or that it's perceived that we're not being fair or diverse or otherwise being aligned with the 21st century. And it hasn't been an issue in many instances, but but that's my biggest worry at this point. I think the rest of it, as you say, the infrastructure, the foundation is there. It's just, we got to keep from making footfalls that, that create a reputational problem. So on the Fortune 100, one of those factors is that we've got more Fortune 100s than just about anybody, right? We have all these giant companies. It, it would seem to reason that would be helpful. You can sometimes get a pilot and people have tried things. They've tried programs, programmatic ways to get them involved. Sometimes you can get a pilot that usually means that will be the death of your company over the next three years as they slowly drive you out of business. And so how do we, how in the world do we do that? I know that's been a horrible frustration point for people is that all of the, all of these potential customers are here. All of this potential investment capital with those companies are here and yet they don't activate it out of some sense of pride here. So how do we actually activate it? Yeah, it's a great point. I think what we finally seen is these funds coming together in Engage Ventures and Engage has basically brought these companies together. And it's the first time that I think we've seen that the money and the resources and the contacts have been coordinated in a way that allows us to attract companies and get them plugged into larger companies. Interestingly, Mark, what we saw, and this was 15 years ago, there was a fund that was set up and it included the large corporates in town. And it was a fund that made a number of investments, but it had a managing director that didn't even live in Atlanta. And they made a bunch of investments that turned out to be, unfortunately, not very successful. And so for about a decade, those corporates decided, look, we're not making investments. We lost our money before. We're going to wait. And so it took almost a generation, frankly, of those folks to realize that, look, let's not do it on our own. Let's not not set up our own fund and try to be our own venture investors, but rather let's go ahead and have some of these groups like Engage, or let's also put money as limited into some funds and use them for purposes of making the investment since that's core to their business and is not core to ours. We still need to increase that though. It's a huge selling point for us. If we can say, look, we can get you a contact at UPS or Home Depot or Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines or Newell Rubbermaid, we just need to continue to figure out ways to blend those companies together with entrepreneurs and engage as an example of a group that's doing that, but there's other ways we can do it as well. One of the problems we have right now in the startup area is that so many of these funds have gotten so large and some of the corporate that want to make investments, want to write such big checks, that it's nice to know that we have X billions of dollars or trillions of dollars that's available as capital. But the problem is that if the smallest check one of these funds can write is a $50 million check, it doesn't do much good to that startup company. And then on top of that, if you're a startup company and you raise $50 million in, in preferred equity, that $50 million is coming out before anybody in the company generally is going to get a penny or, or in most instances, very much. And so you get this unicorn phenomenon, which is a nice thing, but the downside of it is that if the valuations are so astronomical when the times are hot, and then all of a sudden if they turn sour, you may have, have situations, and we've seen it many times before, where, yeah, it looks like the company got sold for a lot of money, but the reality of it is investors didn't even get a return on their money, and the employees and executives got very little. So we got to be fearful of that as well. So you've been in a better seat than probably anybody to give us a little bit of an idea of what the 
most important parts in the history between, let's say, the early 80s and now are? Like when you focus on entrepreneurship and funding, let's say specifically, run through the last 30 some years and and highlight what you think the inflection points were, where actual problems started to get fixed, where things actually started to change and develop. Wow, that's a great question. It would take a long time to give a detailed answer, so I'm going to be very superficial in my comments, but based upon my own recollection. I think one of the things that first started and really got Georgia going in the 80s was when we lost MCC, the Microcomputer Electronics Group, into Austin. And it turned out that wasn't a big success for Austin, but we didn't know it at the time. And so I think it was Governor Joe Frank Harris decided that, look, we got to do something. We got to get organized. And unfortunately, before that time, our universities were more combative and adversarial than they were cooperative. So I think that created a level of cooperation among the universities, especially Georgia Tech, University of Georgia, but others as well. We actually formed a technology commission at the time that I served on as one of the younger members then, where we tried to put together the notion of cooperation and, co- and coordination. That was initially, I think, a very pivotal time. And if you look back on, on time, you'd say that. The second was the formation about that time of the ATDC, the Advanced Technology Development Center at Georgia Tech. And ATDC has been a phenomenal success of the great work that John Avery and Jane Karwaski do there now, along with so many others, Frank Ty and others, has basically been very significant. And it started then and it's continued today. And it's primarily helping to bring these entrepreneurial businesses, frankly, and grow them. And nobody else in the country really had anything like that. And maybe Stanford, but certainly nowhere near as organized as AATDC. So that was another pivotal milestone. I think the third milestone that we really saw in this community was the fact that when we were able to have certain areas that really exploded in the software area. What we began to see were some very successful software companies grow, starting with Peachtree Software, the job that Ben Dyer did. All right, so now we see Georgia Tech graduates creating software companies that have a national and international focus. We then see them working with MSA, the mainframe providers, MSA buys Peachtree Software. So we see coordination there. And the other thing we began to see at that point were executives that that stayed in Atlanta. And this was really important for us. All of a sudden, we began to create this critical mass in in the early 90s where people said, listen, I can find a job here in Atlanta if I decide to leave my current tech company. There's a growth of the software business here. The next growth really occurred when we had internet security systems at ISS, Tom Noonan and Chris Klaus. It had very big success. They attracted a lot of capital from the West Coast. And we began to build a local angel community largely around John Emley and Sig Mosley. So that was the beginning of some initial capital that would go into these companies that Tom and Chris were able to garner and show success. And then other investors began to say, listen, I can also do that. I can follow along. So we began to see the seed and series A investors come into play. And then we saw the dot-com and the dot-com era resulted in the public offering craze. I think our firm did 12 public offerings in 15 months. Unbelievable. Late 90s, early 2000, before the bubble burst. Everybody was going public. Just like today, everybody's talking about SPACs. So these companies were going public that should have never been public. Matter of fact, very few of them remain public today. Manhattan Associates is still a public company, but most of them have gone bye-bye. Do you know at the time, do you have a feel for the fact that maybe most of those should not be going public? And um, you do, know, you only, do, you only, do you only take ones that should? How do you feel about that? When I realized there was a problem was when my, I think, 10-year-old son said he wanted to start a dot-com company and take it public. And I concluded did, that- Did you do the legal work? I, I, I talked <laughs> him out of it and told him to go do his math homework. 
I think what happened was the investment bankers and the commu- and the financial community were driving these astronomical valuations. And we literally had these investment bankers scurrying all over the place to find companies. A little bit like what we're seeing now, seeing now in the SPAC area where people are raising you know, these special purpose vehicles, dumping all this money, and now they got to go find somebody to buy. I, I sat in in a few of these drafting sessions, scratching my head saying, should this company be public? Now, part of our job was to ask the hard questions because we knew once they were public that the public scrutiny was going to be such that they might not survive as a public company. So we actually were involved in the UPS IPO. We were involved in Manhattan Associate IPO. So we had a lot of successful IPOs. But I can also tell you, we sat around the table with a number of companies. And, and after talking with the investment bankers or others said, this company is not ready for prime time in the public. Will you, so will you turn those down? We either turn them down or we said, listen, let's go find capital elsewhere. Yeah. Because being a public company is an expensive proposition. All right. So dot-com burns a bunch of people. I mean, a lot of people got excited. Atlanta looked like a different market. Okay. okay, so a bunch of funds away. go, a bunch of real estate people go away. What happens next? What happens next is basically we get back to fundamentals. All right, it's not this. Let's go take our three million dollar company public, but it's let's get back to the fundamentals. Let's build a company and bootstrap it. Let's have customers. Let's build a model. Let's build a process and a system. So we saw in the in early two thousand, probably from two thousand to to twenty ten, a lot of bootstrap companies. Yeah, they raised some capital, but basically what they were doing was they were finding customers. They were building a customer list. They were building referenceable customers. They were establishing a business with real management teams. And people stayed in Atlanta because they liked the community and wanted to stay here. And so those companies became extremely attractive to the funds, especially those West Coast funds and the funds in Boston and New York, when those funds were looking for places to invest where they could get better deals, where the valuations weren't sky high like they were in the Valley. And so that precipitated a lot of the activity that we've seen that we're still enjoying today. We've had been enjoying over the last decade. And then I think the other element of it is the fact that we've just continued to do a great job. I say we, Georgia Tech's continued to do a great job in, in building and growing and attracting talent and keeping it here, which has been so important for us to be able to say we have a community where we can bring people into these companies and bring them in at reasonable prices and that people would be wanting to stay here and build more companies. So talk to me about deal structures. I get a lot of founders that listen to this and funding sources too. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see? What are some of the things that you see that are unique to this market, whether that's positive or negative when it comes to actually getting a deal done? Talk to some founders, talk to some people that are going to come here for the first time, let's say about how that works and how they should think about it. There's different philosophies on this, but I remember a philosophy that I adopted years ago with one of our clients. I said, you don't want to be a greedy person, but you want to exercise an appropriate level of skepticism about giving up equity in your company. And that has that was actually served that particular female entrepreneur quite well. She gave up very little equity. She gave up enough to the key people she needed to have, but she didn't go off and sell a whole bunch of the company to a lot of people that wanted to buy in. And she ended up selling her company and doing quite well and hasn't had to work for the last 20 years. I think the idea of being careful about how much capital you raise and ultimately what we try to do in these deal structures for the entrepreneurs is to get them to think about it as a pie chart. Where are you now? What size is the pie? What size do you want to be when you raise some capital? And ultimately, what do you want the size of the pie to be when you sell or we have a liquidity event? And what portion of that pie do you want to have? The idea is that when you go to sell, you may not want 80% of a small pie what you want is 10% of a huge pie. And how do you get there? How do you build that model out? Now, if you can bootstrap it, and a lot of companies have been able to do that, it's a great thing. If you can bring in angel investors, which we now have the ability to do through a lot of angel networks, Atlanta Technology Angels, 
Our firm has an, a monthly investor council. There's a lot of other groups. If you can do it that way, it's a lot better than having a lot of preferred equity that's sitting out there. But the, I think the basic thing is to, is to think about where you want to end up. I've seen too many companies that when they go and they're sold, the founders realize that they gave up way too much. They're not getting what they thought they were going to get. And yes, it looks like a great transaction, but the reality of it is those entrepreneurs whose sweat equity got under that point didn't get what they really wanted. And so from the entrepreneurial standpoint is how do you structure it to make it make the most sense? The other is you want very intelligent, value-added money that's going to help open doors. And this is the huge value that Silicon Valley has and that many funds don't have. And recent Horowitz is a classic example where yes, they give you money, but they plug you into their systems and processes and connections and relationships. They help you build customers, pilots. They understand and have a set of systems that talk to you about product development, that knows how to coordinate the sales process and customer success. So we stress a lot of times with the hot companies say, look, when you're looking at the money, find somebody that's going to bring something else to the table that really will help you as opposed to just the one that's going to give you the highest valuation under those circumstances. And I guess the final point is thinking about making sure you're taking care of the people on your team. I have discussions almost daily with people about this, with entrepreneurs. How do you allocate that pie? What portion of that pie goes to the founders? What portion goes to other people? But if you're going to attract the real kind of people that you really want to attract to grow the business, you're going to have to give them equity or you're going to have to give them something special that allows them to have an upside. And so structuring that is important. And the funds themselves will generally require that. And let me say too, Mark, that there are some companies you just say, look, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep the founders with the equity and we're just going to, we're going to grow it at the pace we want. I've got a number of clients that are in that mode. There's nothing wrong with that. It just means their growth rate is not going to be the same as what you'd expect from other companies and their valuation will probably suffer as a result. I ask this question often with funding sources. What do you do when you have somebody that comes to you that that is an awful person? How do you handle that? How do you process that? How, how do you think through th something like that? It's a great question. It's changed during the course of my career, Mark. Early in my career, I worked with some people that I didn't realize it until after I got involved, but they were people that we're not the kind of people I want to be associated with. And earlier in your career, you do what you have to do to build a practice. And I will tell you that today, I, I and my colleagues try to be very selective. And it doesn't mean that the company, that the entrepreneur is somebody that's already wildly successful, although that's great, but it has to do with, are they good people? Are they principled? Are they people that we want to be hanging around with? We have the good fortune, knock on wood, of having hopefully a very good reputation. And we work at that and try to be principled. And there are people that will go unnamed, but that I know I've worked with before. I've been in the boardroom with, and they're just not the kind of people that I want to be, I want to be with. And even if I'd be willing to put up with them, I don't want my people to have to put up with them. And so we make the decision very discreetly, very quietly, just not to work with them. It's a really challenge sometimes when we have funds that want to go put money in some of these companies and they want us to be involved and are have to be very careful and, and oftentimes cautionary about it. But reputation is very important. And this is a small community. This being the overall entrepreneurial community and the venture and private equity community is very small. So we all have to guard that reputation carefully. And today I turned down a lot of opportunities with folks. And many times it's because I just don't think they have the shared set of values and principles that we have. So you mentioned a minute ago, a female founder, and we're going through a bit of a national reckoning right now with the fact that opportunity is in no way equalized. And there are all kinds of female founders and founders that are diverse. And although, although genius is randomly distributed, opportunity absolutely is not. And it's a, it's a complicated phrase to say with Atlanta's history, when you look at both sides of that history, but you would think we would be perhaps a leader in that 
and yet we don't do particularly well in mobility measures. And how do you think about giving opportunity, finding capital for getting involved right in this movement now to try to work towards some economic justice of some kind? That's a very challenging question. I'll tell you why. At the end of the day, I think you and I and others, a lot of people believe that's important and that's an appropriate thing to do. I will tell you my experience has been, and I'm not trying to be judgmental here, is that the funds are, yeah, they may think that's a good idea too, but at heart, they're capitalists. And so what they want to do is they're going to put money, and frankly, most of them aren't all that interested and don't care that much about what color your skin is or where you came from or whatever. If they think that you're going to grow a company and be successful, they're going to make an investment. You have to be intentional about the decision to say, yes, I will make an investment in a company of diverse entrepreneurs, for example. I will have a board of diverse entrepreneurs. What I have seen, and and I guess part of my the pleasure, I guess, is the fact some of these funds are now being set up to provide services to diverse uh, and minority entrepreneurs. And that's a good thing. The, the challenge is that those funds are oftentimes not very large. And so, yes, they can get somebody off the runway. But if you want to get any kind of scale and height to the business, you got to have more capital. That's going to be the challenge is we have to make sure that there are funds available to let that company continue to perform. We need to have more big dollars that can come in to help those companies grow. And those big dollars are not there yet. We just need more of them. Give me uh, one piece of advice. You've been in the middle of more successful deals than probably most people in this town. If there's one thing you could tell a founder and one thing you could tell a funding source, what would it be? So for a founder, it would be to be patient and research your business model before you go out looking for capital. Because I think what happens is a lot of founders go out and prematurely try to raise money and they don't have a business model that's been well thought through. They don't know that there's authentic demand. They haven't determined who all the competitors are, and they look foolish. And what happens is they undercut their ability to raise capital. And I see that a lot. And and so if they just spend a little more time, and I would maybe put differently, maintain stealth mode until you feel like you have got a solid presentation you can make to an investor, and you're prepared to be able to, to show that there's authentic demand. And most companies don't, most entrepreneurs don't do that. There's a real zeal on their part to want to go off and try to start raising money. For the investors, that's a that's probably a tougher one because investors come in so many different shapes and sizes. But I would say that from an investor standpoint, that a key for the investors right now, have a fund that can make investments at multiple levels, that can make Series A investments, Series B investments, that can make growth investments, that can make private equity investments. If you can do that, you can find these companies early and then you can help to fund them along the way. It's not always easy to do. It means you have to have a lot of capital. You may have to set up multiple funds. But what that does is it gives you, you can figure out very quickly where these companies are and begin to invest in them with limited amount of risk in the Series A level, rather than coming in and putting money in the growth and private equity area where it's much more competitive. Yes, there's less risk, but it's much, much more competitive. So I think we already see some of these funds that have been venture funds that have gone up to become growth equity funds, but now they're coming down a bit to say, look, we'll be early growth equity. We'll make investments at a lower level when smaller companies. And so I'd caution the funds to be in a position to be able to do that so that they don't put themselves in such rarefied air that, yeah, they're up there with other great funds, but they'll, they're not going to be able to get enough deal flow because they can't pay up the way the other funds can. As soon as you start invoking the Valley, what comes to my mind are all a bunch of sexy headlines and that the idea that raising money is sexy, the idea that the press release that talks about the big check I just got was an accomplishment, was like a thing. 
was the same as let's say an exit. It feels just started to feel like those are the same things from having been inside talk to founders about the difference between the, their sexy expectations about what raising money is and the reality about what raising money actually is and what it should be for and what happens after you do it. Yeah. It's interesting that the sexy companies that raise a lot of money are really interesting companies. It's great to have them. It's great to have unicorns in the community is no doubt about it. Having a lot of money also allows you to make a lot of mistakes. You're in a position where if you twist when you should have turned, you got the capital to be able to cover it up. Not forever, but it's nice to be able to be innovative and have some successes and have some failures as well. I think the challenge in that regard is, again, the fact that you raise the bar over and over again. And if you look at that pie that I talked about earlier, who's getting what sliver of that pie? And what happens when the markets collapse? And what happens if the IPO market collapses? And so it's not that I'm a naysayer, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs look at it and say, look, if I can raise all this money, that's going to be fantastic. And it may be. But the entrepreneur has to ask themselves, are they going to be around? Is the investor going to come in and take control and basically move them out? Or maybe they want to be moved out because they really like the smaller company. For the founder to think through what's important to them, do they want to be through the entire life cycle? What size of the pie do they want at the end of the day? And thinking that through. The other side, and what we see a lot of companies doing now, Mark, and I think it's a good thing for Atlanta as well, is a mix of both the, the unicorns and the very large capital raise companies. And then there's companies that effectively have bootstrapped themselves. And yes, they may not be growing as rapidly, but they bootstrapped themselves. They got a nice business. They know what size of the pie they're going to get. And they're in a position where they can now fetch venture capital and growth equity at a point where, yes, the valuations might not be as enormous as the unicorns, but they're in a position where they have more control over their, their destiny. They're involved. To me, I guess maybe given my age and given having seen so many of these companies over the years, over a thousand companies that I've worked with, when you bring in such enormous amounts of capital, if you're not performing and you're a founder, then you're likely to be gone. And with good reason. A lot of founders sit back and say, look, I got I wouldn't prepare for this. I got to go. And that's not always what their ultimate game plan is. What do you think is the absolute you know, best single thing about the Atlanta market? If I'm thinking about founding here, if I'm thinking about investing here, what's the single absolute most important best thing? And then I want to know what is your sharpest critique of the Atlanta market right now? The people are the best. And it sounds trite to say that, but this is a community where people come and stay and it attracts more talent all the time. That's just the necessary ingredient at the end of the day to grow the community. You can't do it without the talent. And we need to continue to make sure that we are building the infrastructure and doing the other things that are necessary. What's the critique? I think the critique is no matter what one's political feelings are, reputation does matter. And I think true investors are capitalists and they're going to go where there's opportunity. But we got to be very careful that we don't look like we are not sensitive to some of the issues that are 21st century issues. And what whatever one feels about legislation that's been approved or laws that have been adopted, whether they think they're fair or not, or whether they've addressed a problem that was a real problem or not. I think our elected officials have got to be sensitive to the fact that, yes, there are political issues, but there's economic issues as well. And if we're not careful about it, we're going to end up shooting ourselves in the foot. I'll give you one final example on that. I read an article today. I get the business journals from a lot of other cities. And so I'm following what they're doing because I want to know what other people are doing. And I got a business journal out of North Carolina. And the whole article was not technology, but it was talking about how the film industry, that this is a great opportunity now for North Carolina to go after the film and entertainment industry that's been coming to Georgia. Now, whether that happens is another question. But our competitors, worthy competitors as they are in other cities and states, are looking for opportunities. And so from a critique standpoint, I would just say, let's factor in these issues as well 
And I do think that our corporate community is going to have to act maybe more punctually on some of these issues rather than sitting back and hoping that our legislators will respond in a manner that would be supportive of the entrepreneurs in our community. You've been doing this here for something like 40 years. When you think about all of that time and all of the things that you've been involved in and enabled for the market, you're not going anywhere. But how do you want to be thought of? How do Where do you feel like you fit? What do you want to come to people's minds when they think about that 40-year period? Well, thank you. I think a lot about legacy, not because I plan to retire anytime soon, but because legacy is important to me for our community. It's important to me for my law firm. It's important to me for my colleagues. And I think people go through a chap- chapters in their career, an early chapter is how do I succeed? How do I build something? And my sister helped me do that personally. Then the next chapter is how does my team succeed? And I think the third chapter is, look, how do the other people on the team succeed along with the team, along with me? In other words, all three levels, me personally, a collective team, then each individual on the team. So what's important to me from a legacy perspective is being in a position where the people on my team at Morris Manny and Martin feel this real sense of engagement, that they're a part of what's growing. Yeah, we've been doing it for 40 years, but where we're going to the next stage is up to them to be the leaders, hopefully having learned from me and others. And then within our broader community, are we doing things there? And can I help to direct others and work with others, educate others to see where there have been problems in the past and address those problems problems and build this community so that we can strengthen what we've done to make this a very vibrant entrepreneurial community. Working with people like TAG, working with folks at ATDC, working with folks at Georgia Tech, as well as working with our elected officials to educate them about the importance in these areas. And hopefully as a result of the insights that I've got and my colleagues have, we can shed some valuable information that will hope to grow this community for the next generation. All right, last question. What When you think back over, those, over all that time and what do you feel like is the most rewarding thing for you personally? Not necessarily the career, not necessarily, but can you think of something that you really feel like has tied to who you are that you're thankful for or proud of? That's also an excellent question. Maybe I would think there's probably three levels there. One is my family. I've been married 40 years as well. Being able to maintain a strong family relationship and a wonderful wife. Second is being able to support the community, not just the technology community, but I really believe that it's important to be involved in other activities. So the Woodruff Arts Center, Cure Child to cancer, the Metro YMCA. These are the kinds of things that are important to our community to keep people here and to support the community. And then the third is our law firm. The law firm was 20 lawyers when I joined the firm, 20-something. We're close to 200 today. And it wasn't as a result of going and merging and being acquired or anything else, but seeing the advancement of attorneys within the firm and and our staff as well has been one of the most rewarding things, being able to help to be an educator and then learn from them as well. Do you have any particular goal for what's next. You have a platform now in a way that you didn't when you started in the 80s. What does that make you want to drive for? What I'm trying to do now is actually create a a platform, not just within our law firm, but elsewhere. And my mantra for 2021 is to to digitize what we do best. I think a lot of things that we have done that have been very successful, but in order to have and maintain both consistency, growth, and a legacy, I don't want it to be a situation where when I'm not around or other people aren't around that it just doesn't happen. So taking what we've done finding best practices and building it into a digital environment. So I'm an entrepreneur within a law firm, within an entrepreneur you know, within a law firm. And so we're building that out now. We have a very talented director of business development in Ann McDonald. We have a wonderful managing partner in Simon Malco and the opportunity to come in and build this model that helps our firm grow that we can also share with others as well. And it means I'm not doing the same old. I'm really building this entrepreneurial system within the confines of what would be considered to be a traditional law firm. All this time 
time and now you couldn't help but do a startup. Yes, with a little less risk, I might say, Mark, had a wife and a kid to support and we're in a position where I didn't have any money. So I'm a little bit more comfortable than maybe your average person, but but it's fun anyway. Thank you. Is there anything else you wish you would want to cover? Well, Mark, I just want to thank you too. I think what's happened in this community is it's good people like you that are communicating these messages and it's important for us to, to get the word out. I do think communication is a key and I, I think we've got to be very careful about making sure that our elected officials, people that are involved in government, people that are involved in economic development, we've got great resources, but the levels of communication need to continue to be increased and improved. And I applaud the Metro Atlanta Chamber. I applaud the Technology Association of Georgia. I just think we need to continue to keep this dialogue going and make sure that we are taking steps that strengthen us rather than ultimately hurt us. And I think we will succeed. We just need to maintain good open dialogue, listen to others, and care about our community. 